Well, we continue on in the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. And this is what I love about going verse by verse through books of the Bible is you go from topic to topic. You go from uh, last week where we're talking about a spirit-led life, what it looks like to be led by the Holy Spirit, to this week where we're talking about uh, gospel-centered friendships. You see, there's all kinds of literary genres in Scripture. It's not just all one genre. You see uh, things like poetry or uh, wisdom teachings, proverbs. You see historical writings. You see in the New Testament um, prophetic writings like you find in Revelation or even in the Old Testament Daniel. You see um, all kinds of teachings, the epistles, letters written, all kinds of genres. One of the primary ones we see, though, is narratives. And that's why we haven't been parking on every single verse walking through 1 Samuel, because it is a book of, uh, of narratives. It's, it's teaching us um, these stories, showing us what's happening. And so we take themes out of them. And this particular chapter, chapter 20, it is, at first glance, kind of odd. Like it's going to make you a little bit uncomfortable, because you're going to see a friendship in here that's like, wow. That's, a little, that's almost too weird. That, that they, are, they are too close to one another. We, um, it says a lot about what we view friendships as when we uh, see that we get uncomfortable with this one, the depth of it. But we see in here, it, it's much more than what the basic story itself is telling us, which is essentially that David was absent from uh, the king's table at a new moon festival. So this Jewish religious holiday, it happened each month, they would get together and have feasts, do some sacrifices, and David wasn't there. And the rest of the narrative is about a conversation, a couple conversations he has with Jonathan, Saul's son, King Saul's son. So at first glance, you just look at it, you're like, ah, this is 42 verses of just conversation. But it teaches us uh, what gospel-centered, what Christ-centered, what godly friendships look like. And so I hope that you're challenged in that tonight. Now, when I say uh, gospel-centered, I don't want you to get hung up on, on the terminology. Um, when we say that, what we're talking about are friendships that are founded on Jesus. In other words, we have this friendship because of Jesus. Like most of you here tonight, you might be searching different things, but ultimately uh, you're coming here because we are unified and, and are, seek to follow, uh, are seeking uh, to follow Jesus. It is a friendship um, that is reflected uh, or reflects Jesus. So this is where we live out the commands of Christ in this friendship with someone else who wants to live out the commands of Christ. We, we choose to be together, to hang out together, to love one another, um, to go deep in our faith together. And thirdly, to be on mission. Like we're going to be going to be impactful on the world. We're going to be uh, serving together. We're going to be making disciples of not only one another, but uh, of those that we come in contact with. It's just a whole different kind of relationship. It has intentionality. It has purpose. It has depth. It has meaning. It has power that if you grow up without these kind of relationships, if you live your, you miss out on so much of God's tangible blessing on your life. And so when we say um, gospel-centered, we're really taking it to a, a whole nother level, for those of you who have been around Crosspoint for a while. Um, the world, as you know, uh, the world offers us friendships in a lot of different ways, like agreeability. If you get along with someone, hey, we're friends. The fact that we don't hate each other and we've got to be around each other kind of makes us friends sometimes. Commonalities, you work with someone, so you become friends. 
you like the same hobbies, so you, you become friends. There's all kinds of things that create bonds, but it goes so much deeper when we have a relationship with Christ. You have an opportunity to have something so much more valuable when it comes to friendships. Now, I think a lot of us, if we were honest, we separate and compartmentalize the friendships we have in our lives by simply um, where they come from. So we say, well, I got my work relationships, I got my work friendships, I've got uh, my, my volleyball friendships or my basketball friendships, I got people that I know in all these different areas, I got my high school friendships, now I got my new friendships. A lot of times you just throw church friendships in there. Say, well, I got my church people too, right? And they're all on the equal playing field of friendships. But Jesus didn't die so that you could have ordinary relationships, right? The purpose of him dying on the cross was to reconcile you to the Father. It is supernatural in and of itself. And so the relationships you have with other believers should be powerful. It should be powerful. I think a lot of people come in and out every Sunday, and they they have never even tasted biblical communion. And we're going to talk tonight about reasons why, things that scare us away from that. But I want you to know, as we do this, um, this is a hard sermon for me because uh, the message is simple, but I stink at it. Not that I'm like, not that I'm horrible at friendships, just in general. Like if I jump into a friendship, I, I can I can do pretty good, I think. But just my lack of desire for friendships. Um, I am not, uh, some of you are laughing. Believe it or not, I'm not the most relatable, personable guy. And I, I mean, that's why they made me the pastor, so that I could be uh, such a wonderful shepherd. But I, I struggle just with, with friendships. Uh, I struggle with it. I had a professor once tell me, uh, you got to be careful for a preacher's hobby horse. What you hear him um, writing all the time, what you see him writing all the time, you hear him talking about, if someone, if there's a preacher that's constantly talking about uh, sexual sin or, or different things going on, like that's probably what they struggle with the most. And for me, I talk a lot about biblical community, Christ-centered community, but there's a reason. It's number one, because it, 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 I need to be talking about it, but number two, because I struggle with it. I struggle with being vulnerable. Like what I am with you guys on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning is more vulnerable than I am in most of my one-on-one relationships. It's easier for me to be vulnerable from up here because you guys don't generally talk back. <laughs> but when I listen, don't, do not, let's, let's stop this. Let's stop this right now. I'll, I'll just, I just won't say anything else if we're going to have a real relationship. Nope. But I, I think that I'm not alone in that. I think a lot of people struggle with it. And honestly, it, it, let's be honest. Some of us, we have bounced from church to church to church with this theme over our lives, this banner that we have. Well, I just don't connect anywhere. I just, I just don't have any friendships there. I just, don't, I just don't know anyone. Let's be honest. Is it really the preacher style that makes you go from one place to the next? No, I just don't like it. Is it really the music? No. And is it really the people? I love you, <laughs> but it, it's, it's you, and you got to make an attempt. So as we walk through this tonight, let's be a people without excuses. We have something beautiful before us that we can jump into, a depth of relationship some of us aren't used to. Let's not make excuses for why we stay out of it. And so as we walk through this, ask yourself this question. People that I know around here, the other people who follow Jesus, am I just acquaintances with them? Or do I have gospel-centered, godly friendships? Big difference between acquaintances 
and, and real friendship. So let's walk through this. We've got 42 verses uh, we're going to walk through, and we will take some big chunks at a time and stop several places. 1 Samuel chapter 20 says in verse 1, And then David fled from Nioth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan. Remember, they were all worshiping together. We ended last week. Uh, They start prophesying. Man, Saul was trying to kill David, and they stopped. God just gets a hold of everyone, and they're worshiping. But that time came to an end, and David fled. So he's hanging out with Jonathan at this point, Saul's son. And he says, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father? That he seeks my life. And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. This is Jonathan now. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. Now, David's sitting back at this point thinking, (laughs) I don't think you know how crazy your dad is. He's throwing spears at me over and over and over behind closed doors. He's a maniac. And Jonathan's in a little bit of denial at this point. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So we're getting real. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do it for you. And David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city. For there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. And if he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? And then David said to Jonathan, well, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. And so they both went into the field, went out into the field. First thing we see when it comes to gospel friendships is that you got to go deep. You got to go deep. You got to get real with one another. You can't be surface level all the time. That might work in the workplace. That might work at school. But God saying, I didn't reconcile y'all to myself and to one another for you to just be shallow. You got to go deep. You got you to get real. So, Jonathan, again, he doesn't know just how bad the situation is. You ever been around someone who's just kind of ignorant as to how bad things have really gotten behind closed doors? And, and, and David's like, listen, I love you, Jonathan. I know you think things are better than they really are. But let me tell you straight up, your dad's crazy. And I can't even go hang out with y'all at this festival because he's trying to kill me. And so, here, let's get a plan together. And Jonathan's like, whoa, whoa, what's happening? Okay, fine, I'll I'll go with your plan. I'll do whatever we got to do. And David says, okay, we're going to hatch a plan. Now, I'm going to have you do some things. I'm not going to show up for a couple days. And I'm going to have you talk to your dad. And if he answers you one way, then we'll know that things are okay. If he answers you another way, then we'll know he really wants to kill me. And that plan will happen here in a bit. But what you see 
is this conversation just gets real. You know, how many times do you hear uh, Sunday school stuff growing up, or you hear a sermon on Sunday, you read the Word of God, and you feel like it's just stories. It's just stories. You're like, yeah, this sounds like a Sunday story kind of thing. This sounds like a Sunday school, you know, Sunday sermon kind of story. But, like, I want to know, I want people to get real in the Bible. Like, I want to be able to relate. I want to know, does anyone just get ticked at each other? Does anyone just just, just get annoyed, just, get, just, just fight once in a while? Like, it's all, hey, you're going to follow God. I'm going to follow God. Sometimes I do bad. Hey, we can help each other. And it just feels kind of cookie cutter. Does anybody get real? That's what this is. It's just two guys saying, let's just get real. There's no, there's no flowery conversation. They're in a mess. They're in a mess together. you have deep relationships with anybody in the church? And when, keep in mind, when I say church, I'm not just talking prosper. I'm talking believer. Like, do you have some depth? Listen, it's true. Because I know some of us are already thinking, well, listen, I got my family. I got my spouse. I got my kids. I got, I got people that I pour into. I can't have this deep relationship with everybody, right? Listen, it's true. You only got so many connectors. You can't have a deep relationship with everyone. But do you have a deep relationship with anyone? Because I think we're, it's easy to put ourselves away from all the action and say, you know what, I'm just going to bow out. I'm going to sit in the stands because I know I can't conquer the world. I can't have a deep, godly relationship with everyone. So I'll just, I'll just sit back and let things happen. Before you know it, 5, 10, 20, 30 years pass by, and you don't have godly, deep, you don't have deep relationships with anybody. And you know each night when your head hits the pillow, and you're thinking, okay, I got faith. Here's what I did today. Here, here's what's happening. God, I'm talking to you a little bit. And, and yet your heart hurts because you know you don't have anyone to share it with. And you're thinking, oh, I want deeper relationship. I want deeper relationship. And God's saying, I want you to as well. You see, depth, vulnerability, authenticity, they are bridges that God has given us between acquaintances and genuine godly friendship. Why? Because depth equals substance. If you don't go deep with anyone, if you stay surface level, shallow conversation all the time, you got no, you got no substance to the relationship. I mean, if, if our greatest common denominator is that, hey, every time I see you, I give you about 20 seconds of how are things going, here's how the weather is, I wish it's going to, yeah, it's too hot this week, well, it's going to get cold soon enough. And like, if that's it, no wonder we feel like there should be more to our relationships. No wonder. If there's no depth, there's not much substance. But what's the purpose of depth? Let's be honest. For the world? I mean, for, for those who don't have Christ at the center, at best, the purpose of depth might be what? Secrets? <laughs> you, you know, you ever had someone tell you a secret and you feel like just in response, even if you didn't want them to, you feel like you should tell them a secret of your own? Like, uh, you just reveal a little too much. Um, hey, one time when I was in fourth grade, I stole a sucker from the local gas station. I just, I just feel like I should tell you something because you, you told me something. Like at best, the the depth of worldly relationships is, is, is to share some junk, right? But depth in Christ-centered relationships is about sanctification. It's about opening up the walls in your heart. It's let people deep down in so that God can do some work, so that people get real. And we realize we need Christ. 
more than ever. God uses relationships for that, to show us how much we need him. Listen, I am... I think I have quite a few friends. I have a lot of acquaintances. Um, but there, there's one relationship that I have that's probably unique, and it's with uh, Pastor Eric, the, the campus pastor before me. Um, we served together years ago, and, and now we, we serve together again. He's technically my boss, but yet I'm his pastor. It's kind of weird how it all works together. And we can get together um, for hours and talk. Like, just intense talks. Not like, just like, well, let's talk about things here. No, like, we get real. Like, for instance, this is, this is the relationship we had. We have a few weeks ago. Um, he was down in his office. He was having his coffee. You know, it's early in the morning. And I just walked in. And within two minutes, I said, listen, so here, here's the deal. Out of all of your flaws, out of all, everything that, that you're bad at, here's the number one thing that you're bad at that we need God to change in your life. And I just laid out what I thought was his biggest issue in life. And he said, really? And we talked, but like it, it was received. And, and then he tells me what I need to change. And we just, it, it is incredibly uncomfortable for anyone else to walk by, to overhear, or to even just sniff. They're like, oh my gosh, what is happening over there? This is weird. You guys have an unhealthy relationship. But for us, we've both come to the place in life where we realize we're flawed. We make mistakes. And we care more about sanctification and letting God get inside and do a work in us than we do sitting back pretending everything's okay. And not only that, but as leaders in the church, it's not just about us. Like, we can't keep our flaws to ourselves. You guys see our flaws. It impacts you. We want God to do a work in us. Do you have relationships that just get real? That you could tell someone straight up, I love you, but here's what's going on that I see from the outside. We need Jesus in this. And they would receive it well, and vice versa. How would you describe your friendships in the church? Do you feel like you have a, a kind of a veneer up? That you've got a film over things? That you, you feel like things are a little shallow? I think there's a lot of things that stop us from going deep. But let's get to the heart of it. I mean, for some of us, it's just laziness. At the end of the day, you say, you know what? I could have deeper relationships with other believers, but it just takes a lot of effort. And I got a lot of other things going on. I mean, that's legit. That's legit. But here's the deal. Depth is driven by desire. Depth is driven by desire. And like naturally, I don't necessarily desire, because I'm kind of a loner, I don't desire to have a ton of friendships. But here's the thing. In Christ, the mission of Jesus alone to make disciples, right? The commands of Jesus alone to be lived out with other believers, that should give you enough desire to go deep with people. That's, that's why I'm not living in the mountains by myself. It's because I, I, I know through Christ, he's called me. Make disciples. And if you're going to make disciples, you've got to get to know people on a level where you see God move. You see God move. That's laziness isn't, isn't really an option. What about this? Some of us don't go deep because we, uh, we've been hurt by people. We've been hurt by church people. We, we've been hurt by folks who were supposedly, uh, you know, walking with Jesus like we want to be, and they hurt us, right? We know people are flawed. Or we just don't want to be hurt again. 
Like, you know what, I'm, I'm over the stuff in the past, but, but I don't want to be hurt again. What that really says is, I don't want Jesus to heal me from my past hurts, and I don't think he can protect me from future hurts. That's what that really says. That's what that really says. Some of us, we just don't go deep because we think, I don't really want someone to get to know the real me. Like if the people in this room really knew my struggles with some of the habitual sin, some of the junk in my life, some of my thoughts, I don't know that they would accept me. I don't know what they would do. What that's really saying is, I want to have faith in God, but I don't want him to really transform my life, and so I'm just going to live in denial. I'm going to make sure no one gets inside of these walls because I don't want to deal with what's going to come out. And God's saying, what can I do in your life? He finds that out in the way that you view your relationships. You see, if you have depth issues, I know I'm parking here for a while. If you have depth issues, you got Jesus issues. If you got depth issues with friends, you, you got, see, if you don't go deep enough, there's Jesus issues like we just talked about. And for those of us who go too deep, you still got Jesus issues in that you might be trying to find something in friends that you can only truly find in God. You got to go deep. Moving on, verse 12 says, and Jonathan said to David, so now they moved out into a field, and they're like, this conversation's getting real, let's, let's really, let's, let's do this over in a field. Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness when I have sounded out my father. In other words, when I've talked to him about this time tomorrow or the third day. It's kind of like, eh, I don't know if I really want to do this tomorrow, but we'll, we'll do it in the next couple days. Behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that he may go in safe, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So this is actually kind of crucial because what, what Jonathan's saying is, Listen, I recognize you, David, as the next king. My dad's king. I could be king after my dad, but I recognize you as legit next heir to the throne. You see way on in, in the end of, um, you see in, into 2 Samuel, when, when David has a chance, when he's on the throne, when he has a chance to finish off the house of Saul, to kill off all of Saul's relatives, people who hate him and want to kill him, he does not want to do it. He gets ticked at anyone who fights against Saul, even though Saul's family hates him. Because of this. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So remember, in Hebrew, it means they were one. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows 
to the side of it. This is where you read this chapter and you're like, gosh, this is just a long narrative with a weird plan, and it just seems odd. Three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark, and behold, I will send the boy, saying, go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you, then take them. You are to come for, as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. So this is just kind of some um, communication that they're putting together for this plan. And there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. Second thing we see in gospel friendships is they get messy. They get messy. So this is, this is taking it to another level because you got two things happening. Number one, they devised this plan. And it, it, I don't want to say everything that was just said again, but essentially, hey, I'm going to go talk to my dad. And uh, depending on what he says, I'm going to sh- have you stand over here by this, this heap, and I'm going to shoot some arrows. And if they go over here, then you know that my dad is going to kill you. And if they go over there, then you know that everything's okay. But just know, we got this line of communication, and I'm going to let you know what happened. So there's the plan that's put together. And it's kind of messy in and of itself. But then, on top of that, there's Jonathan pledging his allegiance to his friend David over his dad, Saul. That's messy. That's messy. He's saying, I believe that you're going to be the next king. Remember me in the future. You see, when you go deep in relationships, it gets messy. It gets messy. When you get into the belly of the whale, (laughs) right, when you find yourself Uh, in the Jonah story, but you're sitting in there with someone else, you know it gets messy. When you are thrown into the depths of relationship, it just gets messy. You ever found yourself in a friendship, in a circumstance, where you wonder, man, this is messy. This drama is crazy. And you think to yourself, how did I get into this mess? (laughs) You just sit back, how did I get into this mess? We used to look at those as bad things. But in the church, Getting into someone's mess with the gospel is actually a good thing. It's a good thing. We, uh, when we went on vacation a couple weeks ago, every time we would go hiking with Silas, we went hiking in a bunch of different states, up in Michigan and Indiana and all over. We went to the beach a bunch of times. And we found ourselves over and over and over, uh, even as much fun as it was, I found myself making sure Silas didn't get dirty. Like we were, we'd be hiking, and he would be sweating a little bit, and we would think, you know what, it's just easier to put him in the pack, and he could ride with us, than to keep touching all these things. He's touching plants, he's touching sand and dirt, and he's getting it on himself, and it's just, ah, just stop it, buddy, just knock it off. And, you know, he wants to get dirty, and then we go to the beach, and I found myself over and over and over for the first couple days, he would get uh, in the water a little bit, and then he would get in the sand, and it would get all over him, and I, I couldn't handle it, just like watching him, like, oh my gosh, if we're at home, like, he couldn't come in the house this way. Like it was, he's just a dirty little boy, but that's what little boys do, right? And so I would, I would see him dirty, and I'd say, let's go back into the water and, and get, get him washed off. And then two seconds later, he's back in the sand, and he's got sand all over him. I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't do this. I can't handle it. And then I'm thinking half the time we're on the beach. Now, how are we going to get to the car washed off because they didn't have outdoor showers? How are we going to go from the beach, wash off one last time, and then not get sand on us while we're walking back to the car. Like, this is what I'm thinking in my mind. It was silly. 
And I realized about halfway through, we have been conditioned <laughs> to view all messes as bad. We've been conditioned to view. But for him, messy meant fun. For him, like, what's the point in even going on a vacation if I can't get messy a little bit? What's the point in going on the beach if I can't get sand all over me? That's what little boys think. And when it comes to our relationships, you and I spend a lot of energy trying to make sure the other person doesn't see our mess, don't we? Like we, don't, we don't want them to see that we stink at some things. We've been conditioned that if someone gets in our mess, it's bad. Because Lord forbid we got flaws. Again, the world, they see the purpose of a mess um, differently. Some view it as... Uh, Simply holding each other hostage. Oh, you shared some junk with me? Well, hopefully we'll stay on good terms. But if we don't, I know something that I, I got some dirt on you. But in the church, we get into the mess with each other for the sake of healing. Letting Jesus into this relationship. Letting him into the pain. You see, the reason God wants you to be in the mess with each other is because, number one, this is what Jesus did for us, is it not? The incarnation, him coming from heaven to earth. He literally is saying, I can hang out in perfection all day long, but I'm going to jump into mankind's mess. I'm going to become one of you. I'm going to stay God, but I'm going I'm to take on the form of flesh, and I'm going to walk among you. I'm going to get messy with you. But God wants you to engage in the mess of the people around you because this is where the gospel does its best. This is where it works. If we as the church are so focused on cleaning ourselves up in our relationships, not giving people access to the mess in the relationship, it makes sense that we don't see the power of God very often. Because where do we need the power? <laughs> where do we need the power if there's no mess? Right? God's saying, Quit pretending like there's no mess. Quit trying to get each other to stay away from your messes. Jump in. Don't, don't, don't love the mess for the sake of the mess. Embrace the mess for the sake of the healing that God wants to do in the situation. You've got to get messy. Ministry is messy. A lot of young ministers, they, they, they are caught off guard at how messy it is to get involved in people's lives. I'll tell you what, I think everyone here, like if I just asked you, if I just took a poll, do you believe you need mercy from God? Do you believe that you need the grace of God? You'd probably say, at least most of you would probably say, yeah, yeah, I, I believe. We could say that pretty lukewarm-like, right? But when you really, really know, <laughs> like when you really taste the mercy, when you really get a glimpse of the grace, it lights you on fire. It lights you on fire. But some of us don't ever let the mercy and grace get in the mess. And therefore, we don't experience it to its fullness. Right? It's like if I, if I told you, like picture, I know it's hard right now because it's warm outside, but picture middle of winter, and it is ice storms, it is fire crackling, it is cold snow outside, and you've got like a coat on even though you're inside, but you're just that person, right, who wears your coats on the inside. And I say to you, listen, I got something that's going to hit the spot. I got, some, I got some ice cold water. Let's have a glass together. You say, that feels kind of weird. Like technically I need water for my body. But that isn't what I would choose in this situation. 
necessarily, maybe like some hot tea or something, right? You, you think cold water, that just doesn't, it's just not gelling with what's happening right now. But if I then took that same glass of water and said, you know what? I know it, it's one of our numerous 105 days outside in the middle of the summer, and you've been mowing all afternoon, and you are sweaty and nasty, and you stank. And I say, hey, would you like a nice, a cold, just icy water? How do you view that water then? Because in the right circumstances, you, you embrace something completely different than you would in other circumstances. Like, you love it. And for some of us, we're just lacking experiencing God's power in our life because we're in pretend mode. And God's saying, if you actually let my grace and mercy hit the depths of your soul, meaning you got to open yourself up in relationship to see your own flaws, because you know relationships have a way of pointing out our flaws, right? Then you would be on fire for me. Some of us are just like, I know I need mercy and grace, but I just, I, I don't want to open up and let it come in, so I'll just, I'll just embrace it from a distance. And he's like, that's why you don't feel the embrace of the Father, because you've got him at, at arm's length all the time. He's saying, i got to get into your mess if I'm going to get into you. He's like, I want you into me, but I don't want you in my mess. And I think it's reflected in our friendships a lot of times. Look at Peter, man. I mean, seriously, look at, look at Peter. Jesus knew all his flaws. Jesus tells him, you're going to deny me three times. Peter's always at the right hand of Jesus saying, I, I got you, Lord. I'm going to help you. I'm your right-hand man, right? And then all of a sudden, Jesus dies on the cross. Peter denied him three times, and he goes out, and he's just fishing. He's depressed. The story that we see at the end of the Gospel of John, where Peter is reinstated, he is reconciled, and he's saying, do, Jesus is saying, Peter, do you love my sheep? He's saying, yes, yes, I do, Lord. Peter, do you love my sheep? Yeah, you know I do. Peter, do you love my sheep? And Peter's like, yeah, I know. And man, it's just powerful between them and Jesus and Peter having a moment. Peter, he experiences the mercy and grace. Why? Because he experienced it in the midst of a messy failure. And that's what truly changes things. It's not whether you just embrace it whether you embrace it to the core of your being, right where you need it. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. And the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner, who was the main military commander at that time, sat by Saul's side. But David... His place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. So ceremonially, somehow maybe David touched a dead body. Maybe something happened where he's not clean. He's got to hang out at the camp for a day, and he'll be back tomorrow. So Saul at this point ain't thinking anything's wrong. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was still empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal? So he, even just like a, a backhand slap to the face. Where's David? No, not David. Where's the son of Jesse? Where's the son of Jesse? Come to the meal either yesterday or today. And Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. So as holy as this whole story is, it ain't perfect. Like they're lying for each other. It's kind of, kind of a punk move, but they do it. He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city. And my brother has commanded me to be there. 
So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. You ever, you ever told a lie to your parents? And like you were, you were dying inside because you're thinking, oh no, are they going to believe me? Like, can they tell that I'm lying? This is, and this is not fun. You know, when you're a little kid, you fear that. Well, he's about to get put in his place. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Just to put that in terms, we have terms nowadays that this would translate pretty well into. It's saying, you little punk, you little punk. That's not the terms I was thinking, but. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame, to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. So now we're just public with this. Like, hey, everyone, you need to know. I hate my son, and he's a traitor, and he's not going to have any inheritance, and I'm still going to kill his friend. Let's do this. Like, all cards are on the table. This just got real. This is your worst Thanksgiving nightmare all coming coming to fruition. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear, (laughs) it gets real, at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Like, if you're going to kill your son, you know you're going to kill your son's friend. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food on the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Third thing we see, we'll have to move pretty quick. In gospel friendships, you got to sacrifice deeply. You got to sacrifice deeply. You see, Jonathan lied for the sake of David. He fought with his dad. He was almost killed by his dad. And, oh, by the way, he essentially, in front of everyone important, was just reminded, if David is the king, Jonathan, you ain't got no throne. There's only one throne, and you are the rightful heir to it because you're my boy. You Are you seriously going to do this? You're going to give up your throne for the sake of David? Like, that's what Saul's saying. And it's real. You see, David, he has driven a wedge between father and son. Isn't it interesting that Jesus being the greater David, right, as we've talked about, that Jesus says the same thing in his own ministry? That He didn't come so that everyone would be peachy keen with one another. Like, it'd be great. He said, I'm going to divide families. I'm going to divide families. Meaning some are going to follow me, some are not. It's going to tear things up. It's not the will of God. But Jesus is a realist. He knows how it's going to go. He knows how it's going to go. See, it's going to cost you something to invest in godly relationships. It's going to cost you something. You see, the world, they, they, they sacrifice in relationships for the sake of getting something back in the future. Right? Like you pour in, this is the American way. Like if I put in some work, I will reap the benefits of it at some point. Like now you owe me a favor, I'm going to take care of you. And, and I'm going to tell you, I, I, we don't, I don't, no favors, like I'm just going to take care of you, no strings attached. But you know deep down, hey, if I need something in the future, you better help me because I've sacrificed for you. Right? But Christ-centered relationships are where we sacrifice even if we don't get anything back. We sacrifice not because of what we get in the future, but because of what Jesus has done in the past. 
knowing what he's done on the cross is the ultimate sacrifice, and we're just going to reflect that in our relationships. We're just going to give, give, give. I remember when we left Utah, I had a friendship with a couple guys um, who were older than me, and they were, uh, they were hard workers. One of them was a coal miner, and one of them was uh, a mechanic, and we would meet for hours each week, and I would disciple them. I would pour into them, even though they were 10 years older than me. Like We, we just had a strong friendship and relationship, and when we told them that we were going we to go plant another church in Nebraska, it was, it was heartbreaking for them, and we, we, had to, we, had to <laughs> we had to duke it out. But by the time we left, they took their vacation time, which they didn't have much. They took their wives. They loaded up all of our stuff just on their own. They, they took uh, one of our vehicles, and they drove it 14 hours to our new place, days before we even went there in Nebraska. They unloaded stuff. They did literally all of the work because they knew we had a six-month baby, six-month-old baby, and they loved us. And they just blessed us. Now, that by itself is beautiful to me. Like, seriously, you would take off your vacation time to move me, even though you're not happy we're leaving, but you get it, to move us somewhere else. And it's not even like we had a lot of great quality time. They, they did it days in advance so things would be ready when we got there. But the kicker is they knew our relationship wasn't ending, but it was kind of coming to a close. Like there was no, hey, we're going to see you every day for the rest of our lives, so we're just pouring into this thing because we're trying to build something. No, it was, hey, we know we're not going to see you again more than likely. Or if we do, it's going to be very little. But we're still going to love you like we did the first day we met, thinking we were going to have a great friendship. That's the Christ-centered relationships, where you pour in because of what Jesus has done, not because of what you're going to get out of it. That means it's going to cost you something. That means that, that you're going to look stupid sometimes sticking next to somebody when they're making bad decision after bad decision after bad decision, and you're just going to hang out. You're going to stay with them because you love them, right? You're going to massage shoulders. You're going to be like, hey, we're going to walk through this. We're going to do this. It means it's going to cost you time. It's going to steal time from your family if you've got a, a, a spouse or kids. It means it's going to maybe cost you money sometimes. It's going to cost you energy. It's going to emotionally drain you. But you don't do it because you think you're getting something out of it. You do it because you see what Jesus did on the cross, and you can't help but to give that to, reflect that to other people. But that's a gospel-centered friendship. You see, right now you might view a 1 a.m. phone call saying, hey, I got issues, I'm struggling as an inconvenience, but by the time you get to the end of this life, you will look back, and those will be the mile markers of a life well-lived and friends well-loved. The inconvenience today is the spiritual mile marker at the end of this life that says we were on the right path. Last but not least, in the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to the boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? So that was the sign to David that my dad hates you. Run away. 
And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have both we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you. This is a, that's a gospel-centered friendship. The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. It's the second time that we see it's the second time we see Jonathan say in this whole chapter, hey, this is going to last beyond this. He said earlier, my offspring, your offspring, like this is gonna, we're going to be together and God's going to work beyond us in future generations. The last thing we see in a gospel friendship is that they're meant to leave a legacy. They are meant to leave a legacy. And you see, again, in 2 Samuel, you see David has a heart for Saul's house. These are friendships that don't end when they end. (laughs) They don't end when they end. That the spiritual fruit of a gospel friendship lasts on and on and on. Listen, I have ministered to a good chunk of people in our short few years on earth. My wife more so than even I. And I don't know if I could tell you the names of even a small percentage of the people that we've ministered to in life. But I tell you what, I could stand up here and rifle off name after name after name godly men and women who we have connected with and been friends with on a deep level. Why? Because we remember those people. They don't just go away. We might not see some of them ever again, but we got something that is meant not just to impact us in the moment, but to impact us for the rest of our lives, and more importantly, to impact the nations for Christ. I got friendships, people that I would love to be around today. But when we were around each other seven years, eight years ago in Hutchinson, Kansas, and I had a group of men who got around me, and we were newbies in Christ, but we believed God was going to change the world, that we were going to preach the gospel, that he was going to move in power. We knew in that moment we can't be together forever. But we didn't get together so we could hang out forever. We got together so the world would be changed forever. Like, that's, that's what we have. That when you meet someone on a Sunday morning, you're not thinking, hey, I'm just trying to make a friend. You're thinking, if I meet someone in the name of Jesus, we got an, we got an opportunity to impact the world. That we cannot get into a relationship with each other, a friendship of any level or depth with selfish intentions. But this is, this is not about me. That's the best kind of friendship. You know that? You take things a lot less personal. You see the glory of God a lot more clear when you realize from the beginning, this ain't about me. I love them for who they are, but we are in this because we want to bring God some glory. Why do these guys cry like babies? Kiss each other on the cheeks, blow snot bubbles? Because they got a bond bigger than anything this world has to offer. They got a bond that lasts beyond the grave. 
That's what the gospel does. It's not built on hobbies or personality or compatibility. It's built on Jesus. Listen, as we wrap this up, some of us look at leaving a legacy and we think about our children or our future children. We think about our spouses. We think about even a financial legacy we could live, leave. Or we think about our service, whether through your job, through the church. There's all kinds of legacies you can leave spiritually. But don't leave out the legacy of friendship. How many of you, let's be honest, if I say, who was your childhood best friend? It would be like two seconds, you think. Boom, I know. I know. I know who it is. Why? Because kids embrace friendship. They see beauty, they see power, they embrace it. They run after it, they desire it. Their day is wrecked when something bad happens in a friendship. They hold friendship on a platter. But adults, adults, the older we get, do we not tend to give up on friendship? Okay, I got a spouse, I don't need as many friends, right? Hopefully your spouse is your friend. I got children, and you have some sort of friendship with them as well as just being your children. Okay, I, I, I can't have a lot of friendship. I got a job. I got that. And so then we desire friendship as we get older, but we just put it on the back burner. And God's saying, do you understand? Do you understand that when I look at my church, my church on earth, they have been deceived that my glory, that people are going to see you knowing that Jesus said the church, the people in this church, they are going to be known by two things separated from the world. They're going to be known because of their love for one another and their unity. And if we have been deceived to think that we should just only be acquaintances with one another and never go deeper, then we're going to, we're going to find out one of these days that God's glory shown on earth, center stage, is deep gospel-centered friendships. And the crowd watching it is acquaintances. And and most of us have bought into the lie that we can stay in the crowd as acquaintances. And God's saying, that's why my glory is not shining through this church. is because people are unwilling to go deeper with one another, to get real with one another, to let the gospel invade the brokenness of our hearts. Because what you do in your friendships is often a good reflection of your own relationship with God. If you're not going deep with one another, you're probably not going deep with him. If you're not sacrificing with one another, you're probably not sacrificing with him. If you are not, listen, you get the point. It's not optional. And it's really hard to show up at the end of this thing and have well done, faithful servant be the tagline over your life if you didn't. Jump in deep to live out the commands of Jesus with his very people. What can you do this week to go deeper, to sacrifice more? For some of us, it's taking a simple step like, you know what? I'm going I'm to jump into a grow group. I'm going I'm to jump in with a group of people that I don't know, but we're getting together to say, let's do this life together. Let's do this. For some of you, you're already in a grow group, but you've kept it pretty shallow. It's time to stop making excuses, thinking everyone else is going to invest in us and that beautiful, deep friendships are just going to magically happen. It's time for us to say, you know what, in the next conversation with this person or this person, I'm not just going to have the shallow stuff. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get real when they ask me how life's going. Or I'm going to ask them, and I'm not going to settle for a, a surface-level answer. What's the next step for you? 
don't leave this on the table. God wants to show himself through these friendships. This is where he works. Let's pray.